Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Dr. Stephen Treziak is a physician scientist, professor, and chair of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, the chief of medicine at Cooper University Healthcare, and a National Institutes of Health, NIH, funded clinical researcher with more than 100 publications in the scientific literature. And today, we're here to chat about a book I'm very excited about, Wonder Drug, Seven Scientifically Proven Ways That Serving Others Is the Best Medicine for Yourself. Stephen, welcome. Jason, thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Let's start with the why behind the book. You know, you're, you're, you're a pretty, pretty serious person in terms of what you do in your day to day. Uh, being a chief of medicine, you're putting out research papers, and I wouldn't have expected a book about the power of serving others to, given your credentials and what you do. So let's start there. What what inspired you to write this book? Sure. So for the first 15 years of my research career, I was studying resuscitation science. Uh, I'm an intensivist, uh, a specialist in intensive care medicine, which has been um, a really interesting job over the last couple of years, uh, to say the least. And everything was going as planned with the research career. Um, We were publishing in some of the best journals, getting research grants to support our work. And then um, I got hit by something that Many people have been hit by, and the term is burnout, uh, which is a bona fide, uh, there are now diagnostic criteria in the DSM manual for burnout. And it's a syndrome of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, so difficulty making a personal connection, but also this, this overwhelming feeling that you're not really making a difference. And burnout has been studied in healthcare workers. That's the population that's been studied in, but I want to be crystal clear with your listeners and viewers that you don't have to be a healthcare worker to be burned out, especially after two years of a pandemic. That just happens to be the people in which it's been studied the most. But I'm a research nerd, so when I was in the throes of burnout myself, I went to the literature. And what I realized is that what I was taught in medical school a long time ago like to have an emotional shield, like don't care too much, don't too much compassion will burn you out. What the research actually showed is exactly the opposite, that more caring and the relationships, specifically the relationships that flow from that can be an antidote to burnout, if you will. And there, there are robust data behind that. And then after realizing that and, and, and diving into the data, my colleague and co-author Anthony Mazzarelli and I found that there's also data that compassion in the context of healthcare has meaning, not just meaningful differences for patients and for patient care, but measurable as well. And so as physician scientists and which is just code for research nerd, by the way, uh, we just dove into the data for patients and for patient care. We, we, coll- we curated all the data and we put out a book called Compassionomics, which is the evidence for the healthcare community that caring makes a difference. Again, not, not just meaningful, but measurable. And then we got all this feedback from far and wide from healthcare workers that had my experience where I, ca- I decided to do my, what I called my N of one experiment uh, and test the compassion hypothesis for myself. So I decided to care more, not less, lean in rather than pulling back and detaching and escaping. And, 
and not just with patients and their families in the ICU, but with my the staff in the ICU, the nurses I'd worked with for 15 years, my colleagues, even at home. And that was when the fog of burnout began to lift. If there's if there's one thing that we learned in all of our research over the last five years or so is that the key to resilience is relationships. And that that is supported by abundant scientific evidence. And so after getting all this feedback that other people had this same experience where they they cared more, not less, and deepened their relationships rather than escaping or going deeper withinward, that that was when we realized that this can't just be true for healthcare workers, for people who wear scrubs to work every day like me um, and, and, and work in healthcare. There must be a universal. And that's how Wonder Drug came about. So we dove into the scientific evidence. Again, another 250 original research uh, scientific uh, published in peer-reviewed journals, um, the evidence that serving others is the best medicine for yourself. And so our first book, Compassionomics, was was really for the healthcare sector, if you will, but but Wonder Drug is for everybody everywhere. It's this it, we curated all the scientific evidence that turning our attention light away from ourselves and on other people is good for us, not just physical health and mental health, but also uh, emotional health and and happiness and well-being, even professional success. So that that's how that's how we got here today. You know, when I think about where we are today, Knock on wood, we're, we're, we're coming out of a pandemic. It's become now endemic. I think it's safe to say that most people are completely burnt from the pandemic. And we have a mental health crisis. And we've got quite a hole to dig ourselves out of. Uh, I was just reading the Wall Street Journal today. I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but uh, essentially, our cardiovascular health deteriorated during the pandemic, heart, heart, heart disease at an all-time high, uh, a number of other um, catastrophic uh, diseases. If you know, can't you look at the big the, the big killers? You've got heart disease, you've got diabetes, you've got cancer. Um, we're not in a good place, and we're my buddy green, mental physical, spiritual, emotional, environmental well-being connected, one word, mind, body, green. And I think the, the, the mental, emotional, and spiritual toll that the pandemic has taken on us um, in, in many ways is yet to be quantified. And that's what I love about this book because I think what you're getting at in the core is you know, the, the, the mental, the spiritual, and the emotional. Um, and you bring some great science to it. And I'm going to go there straight to the subtitle, because when I, when, I, when I got the book, the subtitle said it all to me. Seven, scientific, science, seven scientifically proven ways that serving others is the best medicine for yourself. So let's, let's go there to start. Uh, can you briefly walk us through those seven scientifically proven ways. Sure. And, and what I'd like to do, if I, if I can, just before that, is I want to just give your listeners and your viewers an assurance that I don't have any magical thinking about serving others. No, ma no magic tricks, no magical thinking. I'm a, a research nerd by background. So what I share with you isn't my belief or what I think. I'm not preaching to you. Uh, I'm just telling you what we found in a 
uh, a, a, in this case, a year long journey through the scientific evidence. The other way that I don't have any uh, magical thinking is that um, <clears throat> while the book shares with you all the physical health benefits uh, of serving others as well, even longevity, longer life and lower mortality risk over time. Um, you know, if, if the rest of your life is filled with uh, uh, cheeseburgers and cigarettes, you know, you may not get the results that you're looking for. Similarly, it's not a one and done. Right. So it's not like uh, I serve people once and I'm set. Right. That would be like thinking I eat my spinach once and I'm, I'm going to live till I'm 90. Right. So, of course, that's not true. What we're talking about is consistently over time building it into habits and the way we live. So I, I just want to um, I want to just share that with your listeners and viewers up front. Just to, just to, um, it's not a disclaimer of any kind. It's just just being realistic that anything that's good for us has to be sustained over the long run. And of course, it's not going to cancel out big negatives that we might be uh, having in our health and well-being. So you asked me about the seven ways. And so these are seven evidence-based um, parts of a prescription. Both Dr. Maz and I, my colleague and co-author, we're, we're MDs, so we're prescribing this uh, for the readers. And number one is really important. In fact, I think it's vital. It's start small. Start small. So you you don't have to have a major life upheaval in order to start focusing on serving others. In fact, you just need simple prism changes to focus on all the opportunities around you in daily life. You don't need to quit your job and sell all your worldly possessions and move to a third world country and start hauling water from a distant well. Rather, just look for the people that are in your orbit every day people in your workplace, people that live under your own roof. Research from the University of Toronto shows that we in everyday life have nine, nine empathy opportunities every day. And the reason why that research is important for me is it makes me think, how many did I miss already this morning? Uh, and so when you're aware of that, you become, you, you, your radar goes up, so to speak, and, and you're looking for those opportunities to give and to serve and to help right in your orbit. So it's not it's not a, a change of your surroundings that you need. What you need is a change in your experience of your surroundings and, and adopting what Dr. Maz and I call the live to give um, uh, lifestyle or just the outlook on life that if you live to look for those opportunities and act on them, uh, on average, you'll you'll actually have better outcomes. What's a real world example of that opportunity, something maybe you've experienced? Sure. So I had one coming into the hospital today. Um, so uh, just a couple of hours ago. So uh, I'm in my office here in Camden, New Jersey, Cooper University Healthcare and Cooper Medical School, Rowan University. I was coming in from the parking lot. And if I had my face buried in my phone, checking my emails or whatnot, um, I probably would have been totally in a trance coming to my office here uh, today. Um to speak with you. But by just picking my head up, looking for those opportunities, I happened to notice, and had I not done this intentionally, I might not have even noticed there, a woman that looked completely lost, had no idea where she was going. She looked frantic. I think she got the phone call that one of her loved ones was sick in the hospital, and she had never been to our campus before. So I stopped what I was doing, and I assisted her in getting to where she needs. Now, she 
wasn't she probably couldn't even pick me out of a lineup right now if she had to because she was so focused on I, the phone call that she had gotten that she was telling me the basics about and I was able to get her where she was going um that um and and that was uh, a meaningful way just uh in uh j- just this morning but again people under your own roof people that whether it's a uh, a partner uh, uh, a child, uh, perhaps a sick family member, you know, assisting, um, uh, r- right now, as we speak, my mom is assisting, a, uh, an ill, uh, or, or sorry, my, uh, uh, my wife is assisting an ill, uh, loved one. I mean, just looking for people right around in our orbit. Very easy. So, so, okay. So that's number one. What about number two? So, um, number two is be thankful. Now, you might have heard that an attitude of gratitude is good for you, but the question is why? So a meta-analysis, a meta-analysis is where researchers synthesize all the evidence, all of the published studies, not just one study, but all of them. And in this case, there were more than 70 studies and push them together to synthesize them in a comprehensive way to generate a new signal of the data. And what they found is that being thankful, being grateful actually primes people towards helping and serving. So yes, it's true that being grateful, gratitude, being thankful is good for you, but what's the mechanism? And what these researchers have found, which we cover in the book, is that being grateful and being thankful primes you to look for those opportunities around you and to act on them. And so it actually helps you serve other people better. Number three. So number three is to find common ground. So this one. That's a big one right now in our world. You know, Jason, that, you know, we, we joke, but at the same time, you know, it's it's one of the one of the things that is really kind of crippling us right now. Um, you know, our ability to um, uh, to find common ground, to uh, to seek common ground is tough because you said it, it's easy to, to help people, those around you, but not always, right? Especially when, when the opportunities to help and serve are somebody that maybe think differently uh, than we do. And um, uh, what if we only do what many researchers call parochial empathy, meaning um, only take care and serve uh, and help the people that we think are like us or, you know, our people or in our group, what what researchers would call your in-group versus your out-group, then we're cutting ourselves off with so many opportunities to help and serve other people. And in the end, you know, what, what, the, what the research supports is that's probably harmful to us. Um, and so rather than having parochial empathy, because actually what the research shows is that when you're only looking to serve and help your own, you actually act, you're more likely to, I should say, act worse to the people who are in your out group. And of course, that would, you know, uh, it, it, it's uh, reasonable to think that then those things cancel themselves out. So looking for, for opportunities to help and serve, and, and as I mentioned, nine uh, opportunities for empathy per day, uh, we don't, we don't want to put, um, you know, those nine empathy opportunities up to some purity test uh, to see if they, you know, line up with our own views, because, it, you know, uh, probably nobody uh, in, in, in our world lines up with absolutely everything that we think or believe. So before we 
go to number four. Let's let's stay on on volunteering for a moment. You have this this great study in the book about children specifically and children volunteering. I think it was a UC Riverside study of of nineteen. Let me let me nineteen classrooms of nine to eleven year old nine to eleven year old kids in Vancouver. Can you talk about what happened in that study? Sure. So what researchers, this this study was published in uh, JAMA Psychiatry. It was an experimental study in which they um, allocated these groups of kids to either volunteer and serve others or not. And what they found is that uh, while kids, of course, are not going to suffer the outcomes of cardiovascular disease at such a young age, the biomarkers in the blood that uh, are strongly associated with long-term cardiovascular disease were lower in the, in the kids assigned to helping and serving. And so it's just another um, uh, study contributing to the body of evidence that serving others could be the best medicine for yourself. But again, it has to be sustained over time. Uh, and, and if those participants who are all young people uh, don't sustain it over time, it, we, we would think that they probably wouldn't get the potential benefits from those things. Yeah, that one's definitely top of mind for me. For some reason, uh, the, the words, that's not fair, have entered our five and a half year olds vocabulary. And my wife and I are like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not fair. You can't, you can't use that language. Like, so volunteering and some other types of uh, family activities are, are definitely top of mind for us. Um, okay, so, so that, was, that was number four, right? Yeah, I, I skipped number three. It's, number three is be purposeful. There is strong evidence in the scientific literature that having purpose in life is protective uh, for early mortality. And typically, purpose in life isn't, um, you know, I I don't know anyone who would say that their purpose in life is, you know, uh, snorkeling in the Caribbean and, you know, uh, know, vacations and daiquiris and snorkeling may be passions, uh, but they're probably not purpose. Typically, when people talk about their purpose, it is serving something higher than themselves, typically. And um, that's why we think that that evidence is very much relevant to this message in Wonder Drug, because purpose matters um, and uh, in developing a sense of purpose matters. And one of the ways to develop purpose in everyday life, as opposed to like, you know, big picture life is just to ask the right questions, ask the right questions. So, for example, um, you know. Hey, how are you? Good? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just sort of invites, I can't really be bothered with whatever the answer might actually be, you know, but, but answer, asking questions in ways that can't be answered with a yes or no question often invite opportunities for more meaningful connection and, and that can help one be purposeful. So what I mean by that is, uh, how can I make your day a little bit better? You know, uh, what, what, what's something I can do to, to be helpful to you today? It, something that is just not answerable in a yes or no uh, question, you typically get something actionable. <laughs> and um, then it's meaningful and purposeful, not only for you, but for the other person. And there's a lot of medical research on that as well, if you want to dive into that, uh, or we can move on. No, I'd, I'd love to hear briefly some of the medical research on that. I think it's fascinating. 
So there's a study from the University of Colorado. We briefly covered it in Wonder Drug, and we also covered it in Compassionomics because I think it's really important. But it was a, an emergency department study, a study from the University of Colorado. And what the researchers did is they enrolled patients in the emergency department and they recorded what their chief complaint was. And that's just medical terminology for what's their main reason for coming to the doctor. So something like stomach ache, twisted ankle, chest pain, something like that. And then they asked patients one question, what worries you the most? What worries you the most? And what they found is actually there was only a 26% concordance, meaning a 74% discordance between the chief complaint, what the triage nurse in the front of the ER registered as the reason for their visit when they arrived versus what was really front of mind for them. So for they gave some examples. Um, so one man's uh, middle-aged uh, uh, person's uh, chief complaint was chest pain. But when they asked him, what's your biggest worry? What he wrote was, I can't stay away from the hospital. And I know it's because of the drugs. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my family again. And so what the doctors were probably doing is electrocardiogram to look for signs of a heart attack and blood markers to look for blood uh, biomarkers uh, for heart attack. And all those things had to be done, no doubt about it. That was, that was indicated by just good medical practice. But really, if they wanted to address the why that they were there, the problem was addiction that, that the patient was struggling with. And if that's not addressed, you'll, you'll miss it completely. And what's then your capacity to really help somebody? Another patient that they gave an example of was presenting with first trimester vaginal bleeding. So symptoms that um, uh, uh, go along with miscarriage or suspected miscarriage or evaluation for possible miscarriage. And what the young woman wrote on, on what worries you the most, it was depression. She wrote, depression, having a miscarriage is really hard. I don't want to go into depression again. And so, of course, the evaluation for the po possible miscarriage, you know, although the medical technical part had to be done, but the real front of mind concern for her was depression. And I've, I've um, put this into my own practice. I mentioned I'm an intensivist, so I work in the intensive care unit here at Cooper. And I've been doing this now for 20 years. And when I meet with patients and families in the ICU and, and, you know, many of my patients are essentially in a coma. They can't talk to me, but of course I, I meet and talk with their families and I'll have a family meeting and we'll get to the end or what I've always historically thought was the end when I've answered all their questions and I've given them an update and we've had our talk. And then I'll, I now routinely ask one more question. And I always do it at the end to see what's the impact of that question, to see if I learn anything more. And I say, one last question, just what worries you the most about, about all this? And the things that they tell me just blow me away um, to, to understand what's front of mind for people. And if you don't ask, you'll never know. You'll never know. Well, first of all, I applaud you for, for doing the work you do, and I, I'm going to come back to that. But, you know, I think you've summarized the problem with our modern medical system. We don't, doctors don't have enough time to get to the why. 
in most cases to really get to the root cause. They're short on time, they're short on resources, and they need to treat what's in front of them. And often that's, okay, I see this thing over here, I'm gonna treat that with this prescription or I'm gonna send you over there. It's not getting to, to, the, to the why and the root cause. It's nobody's fault. Essentially, it's a failure of their system. Um, and so with that said, I want to get back to the work that you do and a question I, I've always wanted to ask, and I'm going to ask it to you for people who, who do really mentally and emotionally exhaustive work. How do you leave it behind you? Leave and go home to your family. Cause you, you need to, to some degree to do what you do. Otherwise you, you couldn't function. How, how, how do you do that? The, the term that psychologists often use is compartmentalize or compartmentalization. And we do that uh, to an extent. Um, uh, I do that uh, to an extent. Um, actually, I do it a lot. And compartmentalizing, whether it's good for us psychologically or not, I actually don't know. That's not my you know field of expertise. But I do know a lot about burnout. And what I can tell you is that what I was taught in medical school, and this relates not to, not to the, the taking it home part, but what is it um, that makes us more or less at risk for carrying something home that's potentially harmful um, for our mental health? And what I was taught in medical school is that, um, you know, don't care too much, too much caring. Uh, it just burns you out. And so there was supposed to be this uh, distance and this emotional shield. And that was based largely on opinion, expert opinion, perhaps, um, conjecture, um, uh, anecdotes. It wasn't really based on data. So when I was in the throes of burnout myself, I, you know, I'm a research nerd. I dove into the data. And what the research actually showed is that there is a an association uh, repeatedly in the in the published studies uh, an association between compassion and burnout, but it's actually inverse. It's inverse. So if what I was taught in medical school, too much compassion burns you out, it would be high compassion, high burnout, low compassion, low burnout. But what the preponderance of evidence in the scientific literature shows is that it's inverse. So high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, high burnout. And why would that be? Well, my hypothesis is that if you care for patients and you, you care deeply for patients and they know that and you get or their families in my case, because, again, many of my patients can't communicate with me. Um, if you do that, you get the fulfilling part about what it means to take care of patients. You get the good part. And if you don't have that, if you don't have those relationships that flow from that, from that uh, connection, then all you've got is a really stressful job. And so what the evidence that we've synthesized supports is that um, building those relationships through caring, connection, and, and ultimately more compassion can be protective. And the people who don't build those relationships are actually at the highest risk for burnout under the same amount of stress. So yes, we, when we go home at, at the end of the day, we, we compartmentalize. But once I realized this and I decided to uh, what I shared with you, my compassion hypothesis and care more, not less, 
I go home at night and I'm completely wrung out after a day in the ICU oftentimes, but it's what I call a good tired, you know, a good tired because I've had the relationships that flow from that connection. And, and that's very meaningful to me. And what, what some researchers have found is that um, we have to have a time horizon to realize those benefits. I told you sometimes when I'm driving home, I've, I've got a feeling of good tired. When this has been studied in firefighters and rescue workers, what they found is that when they're helping and serving others through their heroic deeds in fighting fires and, and, and going on 911 calls, they actually don't feel, uh, yeah, 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 uh, they don't feel the benefits in the moment. It's later on a longer time horizon at the end of the day, at the end of their shift, when they're at home, perhaps getting ready for bed, that's when they get this sense of fulfillment. And so um, we definitely like in the in the midst of, uh, you know, a crashing patient in the ICU, that is not a, um, you know, uh, a, a warm and fuzzy feeling, so to speak, <laughs> um, you know, what also comes to mind. What also comes to mind to me is with regards to gratitude, sometimes we need to be reminded about how fortunate we are. And it's not thinking of you and what you do every day, you're reminded of, of that, you know, how fortunate you are to, to be breathing, to be talking. It's in front of you every day. Whereas, you know, we're going about it every day and, you know, maybe I'm stuck in traffic, I'm pissed or, you know, didn't have a good day at work uh, and very easily, we can fall into that trap of forgetting to be grateful for, for where we are. And you have that constant reminder every day. Well, Jason, if there's one thing that I've learned, I've learned a lot of things after doing this for more than 20 years. Um, I have learned that life is fragile uh, and it is a constant reminder uh, every day. But I, just going back to the burnout syndrome, um, it's, it's emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, but the last part is um, the feeling like you're not really making a difference. And that, that dovetails right into uh, the next um, part of the seven-part prescription is see it, see it. Um, and so you have to be able to visualize the effects of your helping and your serving. And so now broadly outside of the medical context, if we, um, what research supports is if we do some work or make a donation to some nameless, faceless charity, or, um, and, but we don't have tangible feedback of what that, you know, some good that's doing, it does just as much as good for the recipient. And it does just as much good for the giver, whether it's time or, you know, the three things that we give are time, talent, or treasure, right? So our, we give our time, we give our talents, like our, you know, specific skill sets that may be unique, or we give our treasure, like in a donation. When we give those things, if we don't have that feedback loop, um, it does just as much good for the recipient as it does just as much good for the giver. However, it's seeing it that makes it sustainable. Because when you see it, you want to do it again. You want to do it again. You want to do it again. So seeing it is um, uh, very helpful. And so, I, and the reason why I raise that is going back to the medical context. There, there, I here at Cooper, we're a regional critical care center, so we get people flown in from all over Southern New Jersey, and 
um, we see the sickest of the sick. And when patients arrive, sometimes they are what I would, for lack of a better terminology, hopelessly ill, meaning like there's no, I can tell just by my experience in the first hour that they're very unlikely to recover in a meaningful way and probably not survive at all. And and that's hard to feel like you're making a difference when you're up against that. But I can make a difference perhaps for the family. Uh, I can make a difference for um, uh, for the patient if they are conscious in terms of addressing their comfort and uh, or giving them assurances that'll um, uh, make them less anxious. Uh, I can, to the best of my ability, try to take away any pain that they might be having. And so that's when, you know, some of my uh, trainees perhaps would think, well, we have no capacity to make a difference in this case. Yes, you do. You have tremendous capacity. Yeah. The patient may not ultimately have a meaningful, meaningful survival, but don't tell me you don't have a capacity to make a difference. And the reason why I do that is because that's how it, critical care is sustainable for me because I look at those little things that I can do and I focus on them. And then that is because feeling like you can make a difference is again, what makes it sustainable. So give us a sense, you know, for, for every say hundred patients that come your way, how, how many actually, I'm curious, make, make it out or have a meaningful recovery. How many out of a hundred, just to give it a sense of what you're dealing with on an everyday basis. So we have a, we have a huge critical care program which includes uh, many different types of patients that will come into critical care. And so um, that will uh, have a, a major impact on mortality risk. You know, so if you've just, um, for example, if you are a, um, uh, a patient who came in for a really big surgery, but it was semi-elective or something like that, yeah, you'll need critical care after surgery, uh, but you're supposed to recover. Do you know what I mean? Contrast that with, you know, a patient who's been chronically ill for many, many years who comes in with uh, uh, to the emergency room with pneumonia, can't uh, can't get their oxygen up, can't can't get their blood pressure up because they have systemic infection and their organ systems are shutting down. That patient's mortality when they've reached the front door, you know, is well over, you know, 50 percent. Um, so. Uh, all in all, if you take all those together, 90% uh, roughly, but it would survive. Uh, and that's uh, in, you know, the expert hands of my colleagues here, uh, especially the nurses who are amazing at Cooper. Uh, uh, but that's a very heterogeneous population that comprises that, you know, that, that number I just shared with you. Interesting. So something you, you talked about in the book before I move on to six and seven, um, this idea of, of giving more, making more, essentially operating from a place of abundance versus a place of scarcity or, or having a, a more optimistic worldview uh, and having a more optimistic worldview does play a role in our happiness and success. So I, I want to ask that question, but I want to also add on, does it also play a role in the healing process, what you've seen? Sure. So uh, let me let me speak to the latter first. Um, one of the it, when you're going through a serious illness, when you talk about you know optimistic view, I think we're really talking about hope, isn't isn't that right? <clears throat> hope is um, fascinating to me. Uh, perhaps that's going to be uh, the subject of a deep dive into the scientific literature at a, at a later time. Um, 
one uh, thing that has been studied is recovery expectations, recovery expectations. And we cover this uh, in Compassionomics, but we also briefly cover it in Wonder Drug, where uh, investigators from Duke University enrolled uh, nearly 3,000 patients that underwent uh, a coronary intervention. So these are people having a heart attack or at risk for suspected heart attack and needed an urgent uh, angiogram to see if there were any blockages in their heart vessels. And um, so obviously a very you know serious condition that these people were in. And they measured recovery expectations and they followed them over time for more than 15 years. And after adjusting the analyses for all the things that we would know to be af uh, associated with mortality, so like baseline age, uh, baseline comorbid conditions, so other serious health conditions that they had at the time, uh, functional status, all these things that we know are going to be a predictor of how long they live. After adjusting for all those things, a patient's recovery expectations, meaning uh, being optimistic or hopeful versus being pessimistic or, or not hopeful. And this was independent, by the way, also of the social support that um, they had at home or social support that they had in their life. What they found was that recovery expectations was an independent predictor of death over the long term. Uh, after with more than 15 years of follow-up. So when we're talking about hope, uh, it uh, and again, we haven't synthesized all the evidence for this. It can be a very, um, it, can, it can be uh, tricky. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes people think that hope is this Pollyanna thing that, an outcome that we want will happen even when there's all this evidence that it won't or is unlikely or can't possibly happen. So, for example, someone with uniformly fatal, you know, end stage disease where all the data says that no one survives this. Well, to think that um, we're going to have a, you know, long, happy life, that's that's a little different than what we're talking about here with the, the study on recovery expectations. Um, and. One of my one of my favorite quotes um, about, or I should say, definitions of hope is that uh, hope is the conviction that despair will not have the last word, and so. Um, uh, and and I, and I read that uh, in. Uh, uh, Senator Cory Senator Cory Booker, he's my senator here in New Jersey. In his biography, I don't know if he originated it or took it from somewhere else, but that's where that's where I heard it first. And and that's really helpful to me because even in the case where I gave you somebody has hopeful or sorry, somebody has end stage disease that all the data says no, they're not going to survive it, um, at least not in the long term. You can still be hopeful that despair will not have the last word, even if whatever you're facing will shorten your life shorter than you wanted it to be. Um, so hope, hope is fascinating to me. I mean, I could talk for an hour about this, but I'd rather talk for it after, our, you know, we, we, we do all that research and you can have me back. I am, I am fascinated as well. And I eagerly await that book from you. We, we've had an author on the show a couple of times, Dr. Kelly Turner. She's a PhD. I think she is out 
did a PhD in Berkeley, and she wrote a book called Radical Remission, where essentially she studied, you know, a lot of stage four cancer, a lot of people were hopeless, and then magically, they got better, and unexplained. They didn't really materially change. You know, there are some things they changed. She, she identified what they changed, but it, it's so fascinating. I think there's still so much we don't know. Um, and so, okay, so we'll move on to, to number six. Number six and seven, the last two. So number six is elevate. Elevate. So uh, Jonathan Haidt is the social scientist who really has dug into this concept of elevation. So elevation is this feeling of, uh, or it's actually an emotional state, uh, if you will, of uplift. When you bear witness to other people's goodness, heroism, uh, moral excellence. And if you think back to the, the last time you, 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 you witnessed heroism and it kind of gives you this feeling in your chest, right? Well, what researchers have found is that when you experience that and you experience that re excuse, regularly, when you experience elevation regularly, it primes you to help and to serve and to be more other focused. So when we're regularly exposed to the people who exhibit goodness, moral excellence, um, heroism, it makes us want to be better people. And so you mentioned your five and a half year old. I'm sure at some point uh, in your child's uh, uh, youth, you're going to say, give a message to your kid hey, be very, you know, something that will basically be the message, be very careful who you associate with, right? And so we've all given that message to our kids because we know that it only takes, you know, one toxic person to drag everything down, what, what heightened colleagues would call degrade you rather than elevate you. But also for when I, young people, like I have, um, uh, I have four kids, one's in college, one's about to go to college, and I tell them when, you know, when you go out into the world and you're going to join organizations, you're going to go out into the workforce, you know, be careful who you associate with, you know, gravitate to organizations where there are good people doing good things that can give you elevation because it will, uh, research shows, this is again, not my opinion, not what I think, what I believe research shows, it will make you want to be better and do more and do better. And so there's elevation is key. And, and I'll tell you over the last you know, two plus years of a pandemic, it, it, I, I just want to be clear, crystal clear. There is nothing good that can, comes from a pandemic. I have to say that out of, out of all due respect for all the people that we lost. However, at the same time, there were very important lessons that I learned during the pandemic that will stay with me forever. And I believe will be helpful to me uh, in some way. And specifically elevation. I mean, I got to witness elevation on a daily basis, the nurses, the respiratory technicians, the res respiratory therapists, the, the x-ray techs that had to go in the rooms every day. And they at the beginning, they didn't know if they were risking their life or not, you know, not to mention the trainees and my colleagues, the other physicians, but, um, witnessing that heroism and going above and beyond for other people was, was something that I'll never forget. And as, as I think as a group has drawn us closer together. Uh, and, and, and I think, again, there's nothing good that came from the pandemic, but there will be lessons that I'll never forget that I think will be helpful to all of us. As an observer, uh, to the pandemic, uh, you know, we were in Brooklyn the whole time. We didn't go anywhere. And 
like yesterday, yesterday, I remember 7 p.m., the shift, the shift would change. Everyone would be outside their window. Everyone would be clapping. Um, it, it was, you know, when I think of, you know, heroism, I think of, you know, I'm going to take it to a different place, uh, the power of people getting together uh, and, and segueing off of hope. It makes me think. The power of people going to church isn't necessarily the sermon. It's the power of a group of people getting together who collectively want to do good versus what is coming out of whoever is saying (laughs) whatever it might be. Is that potentially a fair statement? As as we were, you know, talking just before start of the show, one of the things you mentioned to me is that um, you like the fact that we went through all the science and that we've got a background as physician scientists to, to know how to curate all that evidence. I think what you're saying is right. What I want to, there may be some intuitiveness to that. What I want to communicate to your listeners and to your viewers is that there is rigorous research behind this. And, and as a result, I am more careful about who I associate with now, and I'm, I'm 52 years old. So, um, uh, and what I mean by that is uh, who I collaborate with, the people that, uh, you know, outside of working you know, on my colleagues, you know, we've, we've sort of self-selected for, you know, people who will elevate us, uh, you know, on the daily, as they say, right? Um, but e- even outside of, uh, even, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in our home life and whatnot, I'm, Surrounding yourself with people uh, who want to give and serve and not just do the right thing, but be others focused and, um, you know, the research supports, it will have an effect on you. You may not realize it, but the research supports it will have an effect on you. The contrary, though, is not only true, it's just as potent. If you surround yourself with people who degrade you, you'll be dragged down into the muck. Agreed. So last one, number seven. Yeah, this one is um, know your power, know your power. And I'll use a medical example, but I want to be very clear. Like, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to have an MD degree, an RN. You don't have to be formally trained in, you don't have to have anything to do with healthcare to help and serve other people. And sometimes people talk about just random acts of kindness you know, we could argue about how random these things are, but that's a probably a talk for a different day. But while it may just be a random act of kindness for you, it's not necessarily a random act of kindness in a fleeting second for the for the person who's the recipient. Especially, especially when you meet people who are at the end of their rope. Now, you might be surrounded. You you might there may be people at the end of their rope. Um, and you never know it because their poker face is glued on tight. And when you meet somebody in that moment and you help and, and give to them or serve them in some way, they may never forget it, even if you're not necessarily aware of it. But know your power is all about this echo chamber when you help and serve others in a, in a key moment. And you may not know it's a key moment. Because, uh, you know, there, if, if there's one thing I've learned, not as a physician or as a physician scientist, but just as an adult, um, uh, I am just shocked by how much pain people carry around and, and you just never know it. So when you meet somebody in that moment 
they literally may never forget it. And, and there's there's rigorous research behind this. And I'll just share you one last story that that sort of speaks to this. So a couple of years back, I was working in the ICU here at Cooper and I was caring for a, a man in his 50s and he had septic shock. That's overwhelming infection that causes all the body's organ systems to shut down. And um, he, we were treating him with absolutely everything under the sun that was possible to try to get him through this. And, and sepsis happens to be the most, one of the most lethal conditions, uh, even in 2022. And it was clear to me with my experience that he was not going to make it through the night. And I had to tell that, I had to share that with his younger sister, just a few years younger than him. It was, it was a really, really hard talk. And it was hard because she, as she said, he had been her rock throughout her whole life. And as we got done with that really hard talk, she asked me a question, a question I had never been asked before in the ICU, a question you just don't get in the ICU. And she asked me this, she said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, and she said, she cut me off. She said, I wouldn't expect you to, you, you guys see so many patients here. You're, you're just so busy. I wouldn't expect you to remember me, but I need, I need you to know something. And she took her hand and she pointed it directly across the hall from the ICU bed where her brother was laying to the ICU, the ICU bed directly across the hall. She says, I need you to know seven years ago, seven years ago, my mom was in that ICU bed right over there. And she was dying and there was nothing that could be done to save her. And you were her doctor and you had to tell me that. So you and I have had this talk before. Jason, it took my breath away, literally. Like I, I, I felt like I couldn't breathe. But then she said something that as long as I live, I will never forget. She said this. she says, I need you to know this. Those nurses, those nurses, they were like angels to me. They held me. They let me know that I wasn't going to go through this alone. And in those days that she was dying, I wasn't alone. They were with me and they helped me and they held me. And every time I think back to my mom's death and I think about it all the time, cause my mom and I were so close. It just hurts so much. Cause I miss her so much. Even now she says, but whenever I think back to that, I think back to those nurses and it helps me. It makes me feel better. Even now that was seven years later. So those nurses and ICU nurses are like Olympic athletes in compassion. They probably went home at the end of their shift and didn't really think anything of it because that's just what they do every day. But for this woman, not only did she not forget it, not only did she remember it in vivid detail, what's striking to me about it is she said when she thought about it, it made her feel better. Even now, seven years later. So when you meet people in that moment, whether you realize they're in that moment or not, whether they're at their end of the rope and you meet them with kindness and caring and serving, you are doing something that perhaps they will never forget because it reverberates in this echo chamber of the mind. It echoes and echoes and goes on and on. 
and ne- and perhaps never to be forgotten. So now for my medical students, my resident physicians in training, I, you know, I teach this, you know, the, the power uh, of, um, and I, and I, and I teach them just to pause before they go into this because in, in to have a, uh, a talk or something that's going to be associated with a lot of emotion because, you know, they're going to go home at the end of their shift and then perhaps never think about it again. But the person that they're speaking with may literally never forget it. And what do you want to be remembered for? And so I would just encourage your, again, you don't have to be an RN. You don't have to be a nurse to meet somebody in, in their moment of need uh, and extend a hand of help. Um, you don't have to be a healthcare worker at all. It's not, it's nothing about healthcare. It's just meeting people in that moment literally echoes, reverberates, goes on and on and on. And again, that's what the research shows. You know, I I think for me to take home, you know, in your field, in the medical field, what you do, the the stakes are very clear. They're, They're high stakes. These are, these are moments of life and death. But if I think of, our listeners and we're going about our everyday life. You, you, it's a good reminder. We, we don't know what's going on with the person we're interacting with. Uh, the power of a hello, the power of a random compliment to a stranger. You just may never know how you affect that person in a positive life changing way. J- Jason, to your point, um, there's a, a researcher at Florida state university named, uh, Thomas Joyner, who studies um, uh, in a very rigorous way, studies people who die by suicide. And in one of his books, he relates that he found in a, in a suicide note. So obviously it was someone who had already died by suicide. They found in the suicide note, I'm going to walk to the bridge. And if one person smiles at me, I will not jump. So what do you think that this man looked like when he was walking to the bridge? I mean, perhaps he looked like anybody else. And again, that's just what I've learned through, you know, 52 years of life, not as a physician scientist, is that I am just shocked by when I, when, when I ask the right questions, for example, like we talked about earlier, how much pain people are carrying around. And we never even know to know it because a lot of people, as as we said, have, have their poker face glued on tight. So just in this case, one smile could have saved a life. And and I don't I don't mean that to sound like, you know, um, I mean, Doctor Joyner found this in his research. You know, so there's 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 powerful research behind it. And um, what Wonder Drug is all about is when you look for those opportunities, you're not just saving another person's life, you might be saving your own because there are potent of, uh, physical effects, meaning, uh, lower risk of, of mortality over time, more longevity, um, even blood pressure effects, mental health effects, happiness, well-being. Um, um, anyway, um, yeah, it's powerful. It is powerful. Steven, thank you so much. Love the book, Wonder Drug. Thank you for all the great work you do in the world. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure.